when you say you can have compassion for these abusive individuals, because this is the part that people usually get tripped up on is compassion is not a lack of accountability. And what compassion is, is rooted in boundaries. True compassion comes from boundaries. Hey, I'm Regina Marie. I started this podcast to share with other survivors what has helped me heal from my untold stories about surviving my past abusive relationships. And since abuse knows no gender, age, race, or religion, allow this to become your roadmap to start healing from your abusive trauma today. You want to know it's beautiful, seeing your self-love grow right in front of your gorgeous face. And pretty soon, you'll be saying things like, but remaining loyal to you after you mistreat me is called trauma bonding. And that's not what I'm doing anymore. So welcome back to my Healing Village podcast, episode 18. I'm super excited. And I know maybe my other guests might feel a little teed off about this, but I'm super excited to have you on my show. Like I don't think there's anyone else where I'm like, I really want to have them on my show. I've like been wanting you on my show, Tiara. And it's just beautiful. So I just really quick before she speaks, I want to, I'm pulling you up on Instagram, just so people know how to find you. So her Instagram handle is the self love method. And to be honest, I mean, if I scroll back on our messages, I've been following you for quite some time. And I probably watch you daily. And the reason I wanted to bring you on so much is because I really resonate with how you speak and how you explain it. Also that you're also a survivor. So you get it because there's a lot of therapists or coaches out there who are just like, Oh, I can help you through crisis or trauma. But can you help us through narcissistic trauma and narcissistic abuse? Because those are two very different things. And just because someone is an a-hole or screams at you, or just because they cheat on you, doesn't make them narcissistic, right? People do throw that word around. Like there are DSM-5 traits that they need to have. And being a psych major and starting my practicum and internship here soon, like that's something that I wish more people would study as opposed to just throwing that word around. And judges definitely don't like to hear that word if, you know, towards your spouse without them being professionally diagnosed from someone. And today's topic, I, I always let my interviewers or my interviewees really decide what they want to focus on, what's most important for you that you coach to that resonates with you. And today's topic is compassion. And so I will let you kind of take the reins and talk about why this topic and then also a little bit of background about you so the listeners can also follow you on Instagram and know what workshops you have and what it is you have to offer for their healing as well. Because as this is titled, My Healing Village, right? It takes a village. It's not just one person or one quote or one song or one boot camp. It's going to take a village to heal through this. And we need as much help as possible. And you are part of that help that has helped me heal in in my healing process. So thank you for that. And the floor (laughs) is yours. Thank you so much, Regina. I appreciate that. And I'm just stoked that I can be helpful to others. I never thought I would be here. Honestly, my journey started when I discovered narcissism, as most people do. And it was quite shocking. I had just recently left a relationship where I had given everything, like literally everything. I had like no money, no car, and I had an eight month old child. And I was just trying to figure life out. And I had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And I felt really responsible for that person and his life and his other children that I was helping to raise at the time. And I didn't really have very good perspective on what I'd actually gone through. 
you know, when you're deep in it, you don't see it for what it is until you can gain that perspective. And it took me a while to gain that perspective. But when I did, oh boy, I don't remember how or where I learned the term narcissism. But as soon as I went down that rabbit hole, I just couldn't believe how much he just fit every single description, every single story I heard, I could find some sort of resonance or familiarity with. And I love researching. I love understanding problems. I like to dissect them. That is just kind of how my brain works. And I found a lot of healing and validation in just learning and understanding narcissism. So without a formal degree, I basically had an online education in narcissism, which, you know, I kind of tucked away and I used all of that knowledge and information that I was gaining to set the proper boundaries and really to gain control of my life. And I was extremely fortunate. I didn't have to co-parent with my ex. When I left, I ended up having to move 400 miles away because that's where my support system was. And being a single mother with no car, no income or anything of that sort, I needed that support system. And he threatened to take my son away and to do all of the things and didn't ever show up to court. So I got really lucky. And I credit that partially to the boundaries that I was setting because I just refused to communicate with him other than email and just really held my ground, but also circumstantial because he just didn't have the financial resources to fight me when he was now responsible, fully responsible for the three children that he should have been responsible for all along that I had been paying for, for the last couple of years. So that was kind of where that relationship ended. But then really my journey began in learning about myself. Because what I discovered was that even without that relationship, I was a very toxic person. I was extremely angry. I was extremely dysregulated. And my son was the one who suffered the most through that. Because even though he didn't have a narcissistic parent there, I was kind of both because I was very emotionally dysregulated. I had extreme like rage issues and I had a lot of shame around my own behavior and how I was parenting, but it was compulsive. And also I didn't know how to get out of it. And I was also running away in a lot of ways from my life and from dealing with the trauma because I didn't understand what trauma was. I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me, but I didn't know what. But coming from this background of just having a thirst for knowledge and understanding, once I hit a couple of rock bottoms in my own life, just financially, emotionally with my son, that the pain of those experiences really pushed me into going, okay, well, how do I solve this problem? How do I change fundamentally who I am. And by the way, after that narcissistic relationship and understanding narcissism and learning about narcissism, I still continue to date narcissists. I dated at least three more after my son's father. And by the third one, that was really where I hit like my one of my deepest rock bottoms because I could no longer blame them. Right. I'm like, this is a pattern. I'm obviously allowing this in my life. Why? Right. Why am I allowing this in my life? And I discovered a belief that I didn't deserve better than that. I really believed that I'm a single mother now. And even before that, I'm sure I had some similar belief systems, but it really came out hard. I'm like, who's going to want me? Who's going to want me as a single mother? I'm just, I was working as a server in a restaurant. I had been for many years. I really had nothing going for me. And I really did not value myself very much. And that's really where my self-love journey began. 
is that rock bottom moment where I was like, okay, well, if that's what I believe, then how do I change that? How do I change that belief about myself? And that journey started, I think this was about six years ago that that started. And it's been quite a ride ever since and a lot of pitfalls and a lot of mistakes. But this is why I feel like compassion is the most important thing. And it really starts with self-compassion. I love that. And thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm sure there's so many people that can resonate that, hey, it didn't just happen with one person. And that's where I think too, we can kind of get tripped up with this happened. Okay, I got out of it. How did I fall into another one? How did I fall into another one? Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the narcissist. Then they start going down that Mm -hmm. rabbit hole. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. There's codependency roles. There's enabler roles. There's avoidant attachment, right? There's emotional unavailability that's taking place. There's a lot of factors that are there that are keeping you to say, you know, this is familiar. This is almost comfortable. I know what to expect with this. So I'm good with it, even though the roller coaster is up and down. I know to expect that. Whereas then when you get into a relationship, as I think I've seen on your post that you are now with someone who's steady and calm and peaceful, and it's like almost, this is normal. But <laughs> you're almost like waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> At some point, you're like, but is this, is this normal? Is this healthy? And there's a couple of things I wrote down. When you said, why am I allowing this to happen? And I wrote, I love that you're taking responsibility, right? That it's not playing the victim as saying, you know, why does this keep happening to me, right? Life is happening either for you or against you. In a lot of people's minds, it's one or the other. And for those who think that life is happening to them, that's just like they have no control. This is just how the cookie crumbles. This is the hand you were dealt. So deal with it and just do your best, you know, and whatever level best is for them. But then there's the mindset of this is happening for me, right? I think there was someone and I can't remember his name. It says, you can either take it as a lesson or a blessing of how it's happening to you. And so this all looks like it's been happening almost as both, right? It's a lesson that you've been learning, but then it's become such a blessing in your life that you're able to help and give back to others, which in turn also helps heal you again. So it's just like this karmatic kind of way to heal yourself while healing others. And I wanted to clarify, you've been doing this for six years. Is that six years since your last rock bottom with the last relationship or six years since? Okay. So your child is like nine ish Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. He's turning nine this month. Yeah. That's beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So self-compassion, what does that look like? What does that look like to you and your journey? Well, so first of all, I want to kind of highlight what compassion isn't. Yeah. Before we talk about what it is, because I think there's such a misunderstanding about compassion just overall. And I think when people understand what compassion really is, it can be very freeing, but also challenging. So first of all, self-compassion and compassion is not self-sacrifice. Okay. It is not just bend over backwards to please others, you know, or even for yourself right? We can even sometimes go overboard because that's more of like that avoidant style. Like I'm just going to cut everyone else off and I'm just going to do my, that like hyper independence. And that is not compassionate at all. First of all, when you're sacrificing for others, it's not compassionate to you or to them because how much are you really able to give? You're like pouring from an empty cup and ultimately nobody wins in that scenario. And self-compassion also, or sorry, not self-compassion, but compassion overall is not fixing or rescuing others. Fixing or rescuing others is not compassionate. It's not compassionate to you. It's not compassionate to them. Because the message that you are sending to someone else 
by trying to fix or rescue them is that there is something wrong with them and that they need to change for you. That's not compassion. That is manipulation and it's self-serving, unfortunately. And it's hard to look at it that way. But there's very much a lot of codependency in that fixing and rescuing, right? And a lot of assumptions also that you're making about that person and where they're at and what they need and their capabilities. Even right? though it's coming from a really good place, I think those are all learned behaviors that we have learned. Like, that's what love is. I want to be there with them through thick and thin. And oh my gosh, they fell and scraped their knee. Let me get all the band-aids and let me go ahead and clean this up. And it's like, well, we'll pump the brakes. Pump the yeah. brakes for a second, right? Doing this all for them does not teach them at all to do it for themselves. And it's telling them that they're incapable of doing mm-hmm. it for themselves. That definitely repeats a horrible cycle there as well. And we do this with kids all the time. You know, children learn that they're not worthy or capable themselves because we try to sweep in and fix it for them all the time rather than letting them struggle a little bit and allow them to find their own internal capabilities. And then, you know, again, we just repeat that cycle as adults. We think that that is, like you said, that's what love is and that's what compassion is. And that's not what that is. Okay. And compassion is also not sparing other people's feelings because that is inauthenticity. That doesn't mean that you go around saying really like harsh, critical things to other people, right? There's a a method of delivery that is compassionate, but in sparing someone else's feelings and not speaking your truth and not being authentic, you are kind of removing choice in your relationships. You're not allowing other people to express themselves authentically. You're trying to manipulate outcomes here, right? Oh, if I say that they won't like me, if I'm honest about this, then they won't like me, right? Well, how do you know? You're removing their choice in that situation to go, is this person for me or is this person not for me? Right. Right. And it's actually not compassionate towards them to not give them an authentic reflection of what you're seeing as well. That hits home. It really hits home. What immediately popped in my head was there was one with my kid, but there was one with, and you know, I'll start with my kid because I think it, it starts at that age, right? It's a learned behavior of when we try to, and I think this is also where maybe masks start forming to comply with other people. And in order for this person to like me, I make them laugh and they like that about me. So I'm going to go ahead and be like, you know, Mr. Funny Guy with this guy, right? And so you start learning how to be with certain people. And when you said to manipulate outcomes, I remember my daughter having a conversation with one of her friends who had a sleepover a few weeks ago before school started. And I said, you know what, Serena, I noticed that you act a little different around her. Like there's a different Serena that pops up when your friend is over. You know, I don't really get to see her. Like that's, that's a new side of you that I think is beautiful. I said, the only problem is, is, you know, all of a sudden when I come back in the room, your sock drawer is now filled with toys. And this is put over here. And like your whole room is destroyed. I'm like, so are we setting boundaries though? Are you still feeling comfortable to be who you are and to say like, my mom won't like this or no, we don't do that. And she's like, if I say that, what if she doesn't like me anymore? What if she doesn't want to be my friend anymore? And I'm like, you have to find out. You have to give her the opportunity to find out if she's okay with that or not. And so we were having that exact conversation. And I think the conversation could have gone many different ways, right? I'm not saying that's the only way it could have happened, but... I feel that even as adults, I noticed that in my ex, and I have a couple ex, abusive ex, but one of them in particular, very much where would manipulate the outcomes. And almost I felt like I had to as well for survival. And I don't know if you can relate to that when you're in those situations where you're like, you're trying to be compassionate about the situation, his feelings, the heightened emotions. But then at the same time, when 
they're talking about something and you're like, this is not the great time to bring this up. And then you like wait for them to get into a good mood. And once they're in a good mood, you're like, hey, so since we're here, let me talk about this. And then, you know, you just like ruin their day and then it happens that, you know, there's a whole blow up. And you try to manipulate an outcome. And sometimes like, yeah, like, let's go ahead and do that. Because you know, like, maybe they would buy into it more. So you almost have to really play to the dealer sometimes. And that just gets very inauthentic. It's a game of chess. And I feel like in those situations, there's little compassion on both sides for that. Like, it's just, are my needs getting met? And what's the best way to get my needs met as opposed to really caring about where the other person's at in that spot emotionally? Right. And also you're not giving them the opportunity to rise to the occasion because when you are authentic, you are giving them an opportunity to show you who they are and what they're capable of and where they're at right now. And sometimes that means that they are challenged and they are stretched and they need that for their growth. And so it is absolutely compassionate to someone to be authentic and to say what you're saying. And it is not a bad thing sometimes to pick your timing, right? Don't bring up a really authentic, deep conversation when someone's like trying to rush out the door and go do something, right? Like that might be a little bit manipulative as well in terms of trying to get the right, you know, certain outcomes. You got to pick your timing, but a lack of authenticity is not going to be compassionate for either one of you. It's like this kind of weaselly dance that you do and it creates stagnation in your life and in relationships. Growth is the purpose of relationships. That's what I think relationships should be used for is growth. And if you're not using a relationship for growth, you're doing it wrong. If you're doing it to get your needs met, to feel fulfilled, to fill a hole, any of those things, then you are not approaching relationships in a healthy or compassionate way. I agree. I love that. Growth is the purpose for relationships. Because how many people listening right now can honestly say, that they didn't just, you know, get broken up with or break up with or have been discarded or whatever the case is, and then immediately jump into someone else's arms. Like, what is the purpose then? And I think it takes a lot of self-awareness and a lot of brutal, honest questions to ask yourself, what am I doing? And why am I doing it? Am I doing it just so I can feel a physical hug so that I am not alone in my bed so that I have someone who is blowing up my phone and cares about me and, you know, and I just can't be alone with my own thoughts. And Growth is the purpose for relationships. I love that because here's the thing that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be long term, right? I mean, everyone's kind of heard there's people in their lives or reasons or seasons and kind of a thing. And there can be just like with yours, like I'm certain that when you went through each one, you were like, what good is coming out of this right now? Like, what's happening? This is not ideal. But each one, you found out something to grow from, I'm certain, you know, and just helped you into what you do now for other people. And there was one that I even just talked to a guy for six weeks and then the discard happened. And I was like, pump the brakes. How can I grow from that? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you just immediately, like you completely were blindsided by the love bombing. But Regina, you noticed the devalue as soon as it happened. You didn't allow it to become a trauma bond. And Mm -hmm. so anything like that, as we're progressing through these relationships, finding growth, whether it's from yourself or from the other person, something that you can take from everyone has golden nuggets we can learn from. And I truly believe that whether it's something that we learn that we want to emulate in our lives or something that we want to make certain we don't go down that path. Mm-hmm. And that does take a certain amount of awareness and, and compassion to acknowledge that. And I think that it's great that you are able to hone in on the fact that we're not here to spare feelings because there's probably going to be a lot of feelings getting hurt. I'm <laughs> I am a big 
I know this gets me in trouble. And I probably preface this every time like this, like this gets me in trouble because of these thoughts. But like, I have compassion. I'll say the abusive, toxic, narcissistic person. I have such compassion for them. And there was a reel I posted the other day that said, you know, there's heroes and, and villains have like very similar backstories. They usually come from painful childhoods, whether it's, you know, the loss of someone grieving, orphan, whatever the case is. But then it's how you respond to that trauma where it's the world hurt me. So I'm going to hurt the world back, which is more of the villain approach and the world hurt me. And I want to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. Now that's kind of more of a savior complex, but the idea is, is you're using it though, for the benefit of others, as opposed to just inflicting pain and circling back to just the compassion piece of it. I have such compassion for the people who either just have chosen. I mean, at this point, if they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, like you have the choice to seek therapy. You're now choosing to not. What is kind of your take on that when it comes to your past abusers and the compassion that maybe you feel for them looking back hindsight now? Well, so this kind of brings me to my last point of what compassion is not because I take a similar approach. And trust me, I know people get really rubbed the wrong way when you say you can have compassion for these abusive individuals because this is the part that people usually get tripped up on is compassion is not a lack of accountability. And what compassion is, is rooted in boundaries. True compassion comes from boundaries. Brene Brown talks a lot about this and she's done a lot of research around shame and vulnerability and compassion, okay? And she talks about this and just harps on it. Boundaries, 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 right? And boundaries imply accountability and consequences, okay? So just because you can understand someone and you can see them for who and what they are. So when I look at abusive individuals, I see their childhood. Mm -hmm. I see the awful experiences that had to have come together to create a person who is so damaged and so broken that they are stuck in that trauma. And I have so much compassion for that because that was a child once, right? That was a child that didn't deserve that kind of treatment. And by the way, not all narcissism or abusiveness comes from overt abuse. And I think that is one thing that we need to understand. Narcissism can be created through excessive praise. And someone, someone will look at that and go, that's not trauma. That's great. I wish I had that. No, because trauma is about perception. And the message a child gets when they are excessively praised is that they need other people and external circumstances to determine their value and their worth. And that perception can create trauma. We need to understand trauma. We need to understand what it actually is in order to have. And that's another part. So compassion is not all of those things, but it is understanding and its boundaries, right? Because when we understand something, we don't have fear. Fear is the one thing I think that really blocks compassion, I should say, because fear comes from a lack of understanding. We don't, I don't understand the problem. So I need to be afraid of it. I can't forgive that person. I can't have compassion or empathy towards them because I am afraid that if I do, then they're just going to come back and abuse me or I'm letting them off the hook for everything that they have done. And that is not what I'm saying when I say we need to be compassionate because compassion has to do with holding people accountable for their crimes and for the things that they're doing to other people because it is about meeting needs, not wants. Those people more than anybody else need accountability. They need consequences and they do not need any further enabling. That is not compassionate for them because that is what's perpetuating their suffering is the enabling. 
And it's interesting because of the few self-aware narcissists that I have followed or come in contact with, there is a common denominator with each one of them. And that is rock bottom. They have to hit rock bottom in order to seek any sort of resolution or change. Now, there's no cure for narcissism. So I want to make that really clear. But these individuals can, and it's a really, really small percentage, something like 1% can seek therapy and stay in treatment long-term and manage their symptoms and actually live a decent life. But I think the reason why that 1% is so small is because there are so many enablers out there that they just go and they're just like, oh, that person's not enabling me anymore. I'm just going to find someone else. Oh, and that is the rose colored glasses. I'm going to find someone else who's still looking through them. And so my mission is to heal as many of those enablers as we can so that we can stop enabling this behavior and hopefully give more of these toxic individuals a chance to hit that rock bottom and to seek the treatment that is absolutely necessary for any chance of a recovery for any of them. It is the most compassionate. And I think people, and and I fully agree with you, right? My heart is with yours. And so looking at devil's advocate, how is that compassionate to watch someone fall? How is it compassionate to do those things, to let someone fail? And like you said, it kind of comes back to, I think maybe those who understand it better are those who have children. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think it's those who help understand a little bit better if you view them as a child, because when they get into those emotional episodes, they are reverting back to that emotional phase where where their trauma pretty much occurred. If they're stuck between three to 10 years old, like that's what's happening. That's how they're able to manage their emotions. And what I had to do with one of my exes, and he would have his abusive, emotional, destroying things around the house, screaming, berating, all the episode happening at the same time, right? Stomping the feet, slamming the doors, punching holes in the walls, all the things. When that would be taking place, I would literally look at him Like he was my toddler running around or, you know, look at him like a three-year-old. What does he need right now? What would my three-year-old need right now? One, I'm not going to tolerate this behavior. Put him in a timeout. Like let him know that it's not going to be acceptable behavior that I'm going to then respond to. Or I don't want to enable this. I don't want to give in for them to think that it's okay to continue behaving this way. Oh, all I have to do is throw something and and she's going to listen. No, you throw something and I'm gone. Like there's a consequence. And what I've noticed though, is when I would try to be compassionate, which I, at the time, my understanding and definition of compassion was almost enabling. What can I do for you? How can I help you? How can we make this stop? What do you need from me? And that's when he felt validated. When I would stop everything in my world and focus on his immediate needs. And if I ever shifted them to anyone or anything else, I no longer cared. It's like it constantly had to be on him in order for him to feel like he was loved and that I was being compassionate towards him. But then at the same time, like you said in the beginning, I was then sacrificing. I was then people pleasing. I was then sparing his feelings with telling him truth and honesty. And that at the time, like that's not what compassion is, right? Like I was not being compassionate when I thought I was. I was being empathetic, but I wasn't being compassionate. And I love that we're really focusing on that because I think it's a term that people are like, oh, I'm compassionate because I care. Two different things. And so I love that we're really breaking this down for the listeners. And I love that you're saying boundaries and consequences because who hasn't set... I mean, even like, you know, divorce decrees seem pretty black and white. 
but you give it to someone who sees, you know, all gray areas and they're going to find every loophole ever. Well, it doesn't say this, you know, and you're like, mm-hmm. so it's very, very frustrating when you're trying to implement those. Basically, did he sign his rights over for your child because he didn't show up to the hearing? Yeah. Yeah. So I put in what I was requesting full legal and physical custody with the option for supervised visitation if he so chose. Because, you know, judges don't want to just, you know, completely cut off the other parent. But there was, you know, a little bit of estrangement. It had been several months since he'd even seen his sons. And I knew my ex would never, ever drive 400 miles and pay a couple hundred dollars to see his child. And that was it. We haven't seen him since. So speaking of compassion with your kid, because there's a lot of my listeners who do have kids that are in this similar boat, whether they have full rights or those who are 50-50 or whatever the arrangement is. How do you express compassion towards your son about his father? Before, I was more knowledgeable about trauma and the things, the right things and the wrong things to say to children. I was kind of harping on the hurt people, hurt people sort of bandwagon where I would just tell him, look, your dad is just a really damaged individual and he's hurt a lot of people. And this is why we don't have contact with him because I want to protect you. And I have made it absolutely clear to my son, especially more in the last couple of years, that it was my choice. If you want to blame anyone for not seeing your father, blame me. Okay. It's not that your father doesn't want to see you. It's not that he doesn't want you. It's not that he doesn't love you. I put in that boundary because I want to protect you. Because what I want him to do, and children are always making unconscious interpretations that we have to work on. My, my son's in therapy and stuff like that. You know, I think that's really important. If you've gone through that kind of trauma, if you've gone through any of that stuff, even if you're like, oh, my child was a baby, they don't remember anything. It doesn't matter. The body the pregnant or they all know. Yeah. And the pregnancy, like I had several incidences during my present pregnancy of not quite physical abuse, but like pretty close, absolute emotional dysregulation and devastation. And that primes your child for trauma. Those types of experiences during pregnancy, I had a very difficult delivery as well too. Birth trauma can really compound on any kinds of perceptions that your child might have. So therapy, therapy, therapy. And we found a great therapist for my son. But I just try to make sure that he knows that it was my choice. I'm like, if you want to blame someone, you know, it's not your fault. It has nothing to do with you. These were the circumstances. I don't, you know, of course, try to choose age appropriate language. We don't talk about it a lot. He has four older siblings and I have contact with the three oldest and his oldest sister just turned 18. And none of them have any contact with their father whatsoever. And I told him, look, if you want the story about who your father really is, they're the best people to talk to. If you ever want to ask any questions or understand you know, what they went through and, and all because those poor children went through hell. And I gave a lot of co-parenting advice, even though I didn't have to co-parent. And one of the reasons why I feel knowledgeable enough to give co-parenting advice is because I went through four and a half years of the custody battle with which by the way, his custody battle with his ex-wife was like a 10-year battle, which was absolutely horrific on both ends. But I saw all the mistakes that she made. I saw everything that she did, which was absolutely textbook, the wrong thing to do. And so I got to see like, okay, here's the manual of what not to do. And when I left, 
it was a little bit terrifying on one hand, because I'm like, if he does to me what he did to her, like I am screwed. But fortunately for me, because of everything that had occurred up to that point, he just didn't have anything left resource-wise or anything. And he had to focus on the kids that he had custody of and couldn't really worry about anything else. So can you imagine him having to go through another 10 year custody battle or just divorce battle for that? Like, and the resources financially for that? Yeah, he didn't have any money. And in fact, he didn't have any money with his ex-wife either. He had basically finagled his way into free lawyer services from a woman Mm -hmm. who had a narcissistic father and he just charmed the pants off of her. And she did a bunch of pro bono work for him. So he knew how to pull it. He had no money. He never worked a job. He worked, did everything cash under the table because he didn't want anyone garnishing his paycheck for child support. He walked away from major debt with his ex-wife, like $150,000 of credit card debt and oh. house, two cars, like just walked away. Now I didn't file for bankruptcy, nothing. Just like, oh, I'm done. I'm not going to pay any of that. That's insane. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave me a review and you can find me on Instagram at my.healing.village or shoot me an email at myvillageofhealing at gmail.com. See you next week.